Welcome back to Dr. Dave on Call. We have a great episode for you today. First, I just want to encourage our listeners out there. Uh, if you are um, listening to us, please download our podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you download your po- your podcast. Leave us a review too. Subscribe to us as well. Uh, and if you are one of our viewers too, uh, please subscribe to us on our YouTube channel. Give us a like. We'd really appreciate that. We uh, hope you're staying safe and healthy during the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we have a great show for you. We are going to discuss COVID-19 specifically in a high-risk population. We're going to be talking about the prison system and how it's been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, According to the Marshall Project, um, they have been tracking how many uh, prisoners in each U.S. state have been sickened and killed by COVID-19 in the prison system. And as of May 27th, there have been roughly about 35,000 cases among prisoners with about 18,000 reported recovered. And the reason why we're talking about jails today in COVID-19, they are high-risk population for COVID-19 for a couple of reasons. Um, Firstly, it's really difficult to implement physical distancing within the population as jails have a finite space for inmates, um, especially if you are talking about um, more than one prisoner for cell or if you are um, having prisons that are of, let's say, medium security or lower security and they're residing in dormitories too as well. So there are places of congregation um, which can really predispose these, uh, these, these individuals to spreading COVID-19, because as we've talked about, COVID-19 has a long incubation period. Um, so um, affected people can be spreading the illness, COVID-19, without even having symptoms. Also, prisoners are um, predisposed to having high-risk conditions, underlying conditions like lung disease, diabetes, heart disease, uh, and their immune systems can be compromised too. The infrastructures of jails are very um, varied by different states and counties that they reside in. For example, some prisons have extensive testing and tracing, and they're mitigating uh, very well, uh, almost on a large scale, to combat the spread of COVID-19. But there are other group of people that are at risk when we are speaking about prisons. And these are the correctional officers, the nurses, the chaplains, and wardens that are within the facility. And again, they are actually one of the sources for COVID-19 as well, as they can bring it from the outside of the facility into the facility. So specific policies really need to be implemented within these groups of individuals so that they may not be the actual source of the spread to the prisoners themselves. I reside in the state of Illinois. And so early on during the COVID-19 pandemic, our state rapidly identified sources of COVID-19 within the prison system. They increased testing and tracing, and they also created new standard operating procedures to combat the spread of COVID-19. So today we are going to talk to a the physician who oversees the Illinois Department of Corrections. And we're going to discuss what specific policies and programs 
uh, IDOC has implemented to address the COVID-19 pandemic in the jail system here in Illinois and what's worked successfully and why it's worked. So let's get started. Today we're joined by Dr. Lamenta Sweetie-Conway. She is the Deputy Chief of Medicine at the Illinois Department of Corrections, where she and her team are responsible for the medical care of over 40,000 inmates in the um, prison system here in Illinois. We are gracious to have Dr. Conway today on Dr. Dave on call. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Dr. Dave. Excellent. So firstly, we always just want to introduce our guests to our listeners. So if you don't mind just telling us a bit about yourself and how you became involved with the Illinois Department of Corrections and, and what you do. So I'm Dr. Sweetie Conway, as you mentioned, and I actually wear two hats, two very big hats. Uh, I was born and raised in Chicago in the Inglewood community, uh, where they say nothing good comes out of. So uh, there's a big connection between that, that history growing up and where I ultimately landed in the Illinois Department of Corrections. Um, one of the jobs that I have that you know that I have great passion for is I'm also the founder and executive director of I Am Able Foundation, which is a nonprofit devoted uh, to raising our next generation of healthcare heroes. And our particular target is going into these communities um, that are blighted from violence and poverty and uh, socioeconomic uh, decline and disaster and actually, you know, identifying these special young people who have the same kind of talents that I may have had that could have gone un uh, overlooked. So that is one of my jobs, and it was actually kind of interesting. It was in that realm that I eventually met the person who recruited me to this position because he was so impressed with our work in the inner city with young people and the impact of mentoring on young people and its ability to change the lives of some very special people who, if they did not have that mentoring, may just go another way. And so it was after he saw my work there uh, that he said, you know what, I think that you would be perfect. You know, your passion for the underserved and, you know, match with the vulnerable population in our prisons would be just perfect. And there were a few years in between after he uh, gave that invitation that it actually came to pass. But I eventually came to work for the Illinois Department of Corrections uh, in 20, uh, 2019, uh, mid-2019. And it's just been um, a privilege. It brings things full circle uh, for me. Um, I've shared honestly with, with friends, colleagues. You know, my family has also been touched by the penal institution as well, uh, with a brother uh, who had a number of stints in and out of every prison that I've actually had the honor of actually working to deliver health care for. And it's a weird thing, and it's a, it's a tough thing, and it's a troubling thing, you know, to walk in these prisons, and you actually see all types of young men uh, and women, uh, many of them with great hearts, uh, great minds, brilliant people, who may have made a mistake. Uh, some of them, they're in there probably wrongfully uh, in prison, but you know that's the way the system goes. So it is an honor uh, to actually provide them what they deserve, what every American deserves in my mind, uh, which is quality health care. Obviously, there's challenges um, you know, in a correctional system, but I do consider it a privilege uh, to be able to work with this group and with a dynamic group of people who honestly have the same passion that I do. 
Outstanding, Dr. Conway. Um, you know, as you know, we are uh, covering our series uh, on COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, we want to discuss today how this pandemic is, you know, significantly affecting uh, these at-risk populations, such as people con- in confined environments like jails. And so what we first want to just start out with today is just asking about the proactive measures that the Illinois Department of Corrections are implementing to prevent the spread of COVID-19 within the prison population and also among the staff too as well. What, what are the, what are, what are you all doing to, to mm-hmm. help combat this? Um, I think it's, that's a very good question. And I have to tell you something that was interesting going on with the Department of Corrections before COVID actually unleashed itself into the world. Uh, we were dealing with the flu pandemic, you know, uh, influenza A and influenza B. And here we were having these meetings every single day, uh, talking to each region about, you know, these young men that were becoming, you know, sick and infected. And then suddenly we begin to hear this COVID conversation in the media and no one knew exactly what to do with it. And then we begin to see a handful of COVID negative, I mean, influenza A and B negatives. And it was at that moment that, you know, the bells start clicking, I think, across the board that, you know, maybe there's some other things that we need to be paying attention to. So one of the things that we did, and I have to say quite proudly, we were on, uh, COVID was on our radar even before the, the NBA decided to to close down. And I'm, and I'm thankful that they did that because they gave a lot of courage, I think, to the government even and other entities to, to act because here we have this franchise uh, that's, you know, very more interested in health than, than, than it sometimes appears that maybe uh, our leadership may have been, you know. Um, so we were thankful to see that. But around that same time, uh, we actually began meeting. And, you know, the first thoughts were, we probably need to start stop visitors you know, from coming in. So that was one of our very first things. But quickly behind that, we developed, uh, I mean, it became clear that we were going to need an incident command because this was going to come to the prisons. It was just a matter of when. So we started uh, an incident command post uh, out out of Springfield, and they actually were fielding all of the different calls, questions, and concerns. Um, and then shortly thereafter, we've got our first cases, uh, which took a while to be identified because you remember the testing issues that were going across broadly. And some of our uh, our offenders out of Stateville began to test positive. But again, that was only at the hospital because they weren't locally available initially. But some of the things that we began to do is we started the, the incident command. We began to also overlap our flu calls with uh, COVID calls. And then eventually that kind of dissipated and we just began to aggressively focus through our incident command, which involved operations uh, and medical teams uh, and specialists from all over. Then we were beginning to develop uh, criteria for potentially for uh, early release, medical furlough, and all of those conversations were happening pretty much simultaneously. I think one of the first 
and most important things that we did is we instituted an administrative quarantine across the board. So every one of our 29 facilities, uh, and I'm talking about the correctional facilities as opposed to our transitional centers, where which are set up a little bit differently, every one of our 29 facilities went under what we call an administration no quarantine. And what that was created to do was to try to create create a humanistic, uh, reasonable, but safe way of keeping our offenders safe, but at the same time trying to provide a, a measure of safety from the disease. And that is a real tough walk to walk because you don't, you know, when you're talking about an administrative quarantine, what you are essentially speaking of is you're going to reduce to a certain extent the normal movement um, for our offenders. And that makes living in an incarcerated state really challenging. So we had to come up with different plans. And one of the things that we uh, instituted is what we call a normalcy task force. What can we do when our offenders can't go out to yard potentially in some facilities? Um, some they can, but uh, or they can't maybe play cards or you know read books even safely. You know we can't pass books from offender to offender or allow them to share as they might have normally done. So uh, developing a normalcy task force in the midst of uh, these quarantines uh, were important. The second part of that uh, was, you know, we had an administrative quarantine, which kind of is a balance between some level of decreased movement um, in, to err on the side of safety in terms of transmitting the virus. But then we also developed what we call a medical quarantine. And that was very specific for our facilities that actually identified COVID positive cases. And we are very proud and happy to say uh, that we only have five facilities out of our 29 that actually have documented positive cases. Uh, and the rest of them, and we meet daily, uh, have been free of disease. And that's somewhat a reflection of where um, these facilities are located. Obviously, Stateville and Sheridan, which are up in the north, uh, were hit, particularly Stateville, uh, were hit pretty hard. Uh, Sheridan to a significantly less extent, but again, being in the north, um, a lot of the employees uh, uh, were in that area were, were affected. Yeah, and so saw... with that, you, you were asking, what else did we do? Uh, front entrance integrity. So we developed our plans when, when employees came in because we didn't have visitors coming in. So where would the disease be coming in from? It's, it's the employees. So it's the only mode uh, that could actually happen. So uh, we began uh, an aggressive front entrance uh, integrity where uh, when the employees came in, they would all be screened uh, with, with temperature checks and uh, checked again later in the day also with symptom check. Um, initially, of course, everyone was asking the same three questions. You remember what they were. Did you have fever, cough, or shortness of breath? That list quickly expanded uh, to do you have sore throat, uh, difficulty smelling or tasting, body aches. And one of the things that I'm very proud of that we developed very early is we created um, a way for employees to call in and find out whether or not they were safe to come to work. And in a collaboration with, with uh, Southern Illinois University, we actually put together a, a wonderful center so that if wardens, healthcare administrators, 
uh, or the, the staff employees themselves have a question, they would present that to their, their employer or the warden, and that will be taken to Southern Illinois University. They will review our flow chart for whether or not this, this person needs to uh, be quarantined uh, and uh, at home, uh, whether or not they need to go be tested. And, of course, the processes have, uh, you know, continued over time. And we've got many other things that I can share as well, so, but that's just a start. So, Dr. Conway, so you had mentioned, you know, this administrative quarantine because as physical distancing becomes quite difficult within the jails, yes. In addition to, you know, you'd mentioned maybe so no congregating in terms of card playing, passing books. Were inmates, uh, were they actually isolated in terms of actual their the population themselves, so individual cells and, you know, the dormitories were closed? And how, how logistically was that completed in IDOC? Super uh, challenging and super complicated mm -hmm. because each facility is different. So if we have maximum security facilities, they're going to operate a little bit different than some of our medium and, and moderate security uh, facilities where they may have dorm settings. You, you, you just hit the nail on the head. So for uh, some of our maximum security uh, facilities, uh, we we had to, well, one of the things we had to do is we needed to get some help from IEMA. And we began to actually deliver tents. And we actually set up what we call tent cities. We did a lot of creative things that we never realized that we could do. Um, in Stateville, for example, we were, we moved some of our um, our vulnerable patients that were in the infirmary to, or in or various areas to, uh, like the visitor's room, like, you know, we really had to do some creative things. Um, those who were initially positive, uh, before we had Tent City, we had to try to move them to areas in, in the infirmary, you know, where we could isolate them. But as the numbers grew, um, and I'm not talking about the numbers of sick, but just the numbers of tested people that became positive, we had to come up with other op you know, op options. And I, I mean, I am in awe of the operations people at Stateville, uh, people don't really know to give them credit for, for the amazing work that they did. They actually took a, a, a wing that had not been in operation and had to get the, the engineers in and had to get it approved by IDPH to actually open up other areas that had not been open. And they, because you know, it's a fixed space facility. And so with the help of the tent, with the help of, uh, uh, refitting uh, other areas, they were able to move some patients to this wing or that wing. Uh, the tent, of course, uh, housed a number of patients. We focused, uh, we had two, a couple of different uses for the tent. At one point, it might have been this group of patients, but as the patients grew, we had to swap, swap it out, and the tent became a focus of those who were positive. And now we also have isolation tents that have gone to all of the facilities uh, you have tent cities for some places, which are for a lot of our patients, but we also have smaller uh, units that can house four to eight uh, persons. And we're excited that we're able to now do some things that were a challenge before. Like, for example, there are some, uh, some of our elders with COPD that may need to have a nebulizer treatment. And you, you know that people have been avoiding doing that because of the potential of aerosolizing COVID. However, uh, with our isolation tent, we were able to provide certain uh, treatments that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to provide. So that's kind of how we did a lot of creative 
moving around. In other facilities, it was a lot easier. Um, in a facility like Sheridan, for example, because they have more closed doors. So you don't have to worry about, it's not as difficult to isolate and quarantine those patients. And they have more space. So it kind of depends on the layout. Now, on a more individual level, too, walk us through in terms of access to hand sanitizers and soaps and you know, PPE equipment like masks, not only for the staff, but also for the inmates. Was there a substantial increase uh, as well in terms of your protocols, too? Yes, uh, that was a huge part of uh, what we had to do. One of the first things we did was getting the hand sanitizers and soap um, and making sure all of everything was functioning so that the inmates could uh, clean their hands as often as they needed or, or wanted to. So that was one of the first things we did. And long before uh, we saw everyone wearing universal masking because there were so many uh, mixed messages, uh, you know, coming from, you know, from the federal uh, branch. Uh, in, ter excuse me, in terms of whether or not uh, masking was even necessary, that was one of the things that we started early was self-control and uh, source control. And uh, we, we had a lot of meetings with CDC directly and uh, IDPH. And again, as we all began to learn things, you know, the recommendations actually changed. And so we were on some of those earlier calls um, trying to map out what is good a good practice for correctional facilities that can't move people around very easy. And I think that was one of the things that CDC realized early in our conversations, at least before they made the broader recommendations is, you know what, guys, I think source control makes a lot of sense. Let's do it. And I mean, it makes common sense, but it's good to hear it from, you know, from our, our leaders. So the CDC made that recommendation. It was some of the things that we were suggesting as well. And we began to immediately mask our uh, our fender population, focusing first, because you know that there was not enough PPE uh, or, or mask for the public or for our uh, healthcare providers in the hospitals, uh, let alone us being able to actually access those materials. So we got a hold of our, our mask early uh, for, and we only had enough initially to focus on those those uh, hot spots, and that's what we did. And as soon as we had enough to get to all of the, the facilities, which was shortly, quickly thereafter, we actually masked all of our offenders. Excellent, excellent. And and you know, obviously, as we know, <clears throat> hand washing and you know source control via PPE, and you know sanitation protocols too, whether it be within the jail facility or or around them too is important as well. Now, now, now just taking a step back, as you'd mentioned, you know, high risk, you know, prisoners. So patients with COPD population who need nebulizer treatments or even patients who are immunocompromised too. What, what protocols are in place now to, you'd, you'd mentioned that different areas of the tent cities are you, is IDOC, you know, focusing on those at risk patients for COVID-19 and, and, um, you know, facilitating their, um, you know, almost administrative quarantine even more so? Yes, there is a focus on uh, that population. And one of the ways that we are addressing that is through the medical furlough program, which is, unfortunately, that's a challenge because you also have to look at not only their illness, 
which in some cases, there's a number of criteria, uh, one of which might be, you know, if the patient is, you know, doesn't have good mobility, um, unable to provide their own ADLs. Um, or if the patient is unfortunately, uh, you know, a cancer patient, for example, and not believed to have a very long uh, life expectancy, those are people that are an easy consideration from a medical perspective uh, for, you know, no problem there. The challenge, though, sometimes becomes the operational piece uh, because sex offenders and other populations uh, are just not... Uh, the, the easiest candidates to uh, to get through. And um, I actually saw another podcast uh, very similar to this one, but a completely different focus where they were actually concerned about the releases that we are actually making. Um, you know, so not everyone is in support of what we think is humanistic, important and makes sense, you know, but that's one of the things that we did, the medical furlough. Um, that's moving a little bit slower uh, because we started that piece, uh, you know, after we had offered a time to breathe and just actually try to secure our facilities, but it's happening and we have uh, patients who and offenders who have gone out on that. The other piece um, is moving some of these patients around to a closer area where they can be watched. And that's not in every single facility, but it is in a number of our facilities where some of our more vulnerable, for example, like at Stateville, uh, some of our really sick patients uh, who don't have COVID uh, are moved to an area where we can watch them closely. Other things that we are doing um, in the offender population is, of course, the symptom and temperature check. Um, that's happening two to three times a day, depending on the facility and depending on, um, you know, their COVID status, if they're a person under investigation, if they're COVID positive, if they're COVID negative and otherwise sick. So those are some of the things uh, that we're doing. Excellent. So mm -hmm. the prison population now is being reduced in specific areas through medical furloughs mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, early release programs too. Do you feel that that is actually helping to flatten that curve of COVID-19 within the prison population? You know, um, I don't know if I have any data to support it, but certainly having fewer patients uh, that are confined uh, in this kind of, uh, you know, it's a tough place to be as an offender. My heart goes out to them because they know, they're afraid. They're hearing these things. We're trying to give them as much patient education as possible. But, you know, it is tough to be incarcerated during a pandemic. It's tough for us outside. You know it's tough for them inside. So do I think it's making a difference? I do. I think it's the just, just number one, I think it's the, the right thing to do. Uh, so we've offered uh, earned discretionary credit. Um, so those who were close to being discharged, um, you know, uh, who had good you know, good behavior credit or whatever their credit was or however that was determined by operations. We've actually released over 1,300 uh, folks to uh, to earn discretionary credit. And so we're proud of that. And we have an, another group of uh, offenders who are in the transitional center. So uh, they have a, a lot more leeway as well, which is which is good. And then we have the medical furloughs, which is which is growing. Excellent. Dr. Conway, so as we obviously know, increase our testing, both in the general mm -hmm. public and obviously in the prison populations, the number of cases will likely go up. However, I think in terms of the medical care that's needed, um, you know, our hope is, is that the, that, that burden will actually come down. 
as you see testing improve in IDOC and we get a more accurate, you know, data point of this, the incidence of COVID-19, are, are resources available to IDOC now to, to ramp up that testing and to isolate um, the, these individuals? Because as you know, contact tracing um, in prisons, you know, and, and isolation can be, can be difficult at times too. Yes. Um, again, one of the things that I'm super proud of is the contact tracing of some of our uh, wardens and healthcare administrators. They have done phenomenal uh, identifying common practices that we wouldn't even think about uh, from even passing commissary out. So here we are trying to create normalcy, right? Going shopping more for them. And then now you're concerned, oh my goodness, if there was a positive here, was it because the, you know, someone brought commissary to them, you know, and was that traded off well? Or is the way that they receive their commissary and maybe checking it off or signing for commissary, is that a possible vector? So those have been um, tremendous challenges. Uh, but yes, we do have excellent testing now. Uh, we have an arrangement with Carl Clinic, um, and we already had a re an arrangement with, with UIC because they are the main academic facility that works through our vendor. Uh, so we, we had excellent uh, testing, and we also have Abbott testing. So uh, we know that Abbott testing has been fraught with some, some issues, but the good thing about the way we're using our Abbott testing is for when we have those urgent needs, we can test people quickly. If they're positive, that helps us to isolate and quarantine quickly. But if they're negative, we still have to kind of hold them into a quarantine pattern while we, while we take those same swabs and send it to either Carl Clinic if they're in the, you know, the lower part of the state or UIC if they're up here in the northern part of the state uh, or whichever is quicker. Because, you know, the hospitals have had their challenges as well. Um, sometimes they were able to do them quickly. Sometimes they had a backlog. So whoever can give us that 24-hour uh, turnaround, that's typically between our vendors who we've gone with. So I, I'm really happy about that. And you're right. One of the things that we try to, you know, you know, sometimes our wardens or healthcare administrators get a little discouraged um, about, you know, if, they, if someone pops up here or pops up there. We know that it is impossible to contain this disease completely. We're not managing to do that uh, in the community, and we won't be able to do that uh, in the prison system either. However, one of the things that I'm, I'm very proud of is out of 29 facilities, we only have five that have documented uh, positives. And, so, uh, and that actually is more of a reflection of what's going on in the community, the southern states, in Illinois, if you look at the numbers that the governor gives, they're just not affected the way Chicago and Cook County specifically has been affected. So I think that's the key difference. And one of the things when we talked about the preventative you know, perspective that we have uh, initiated, I think that had more value for our prisons that are in the southern and the central states simply because we were able to do those things before the cases got into the area. Absolutely. And I think that's been the biggest, the biggest, uh, the biggest advantage for them. Absolutely. And Dr. Conway, as we, you know, start to open up our economy, getting into phase three and four here in Illinois, um, specifically within the prison populations too, in the prison system, when, when do you have that threshold to allow prisoners to have more community 
um, you know, activities or, or even visitors to when, when are you uh, seeing that, that threshold to be safer in, within the prison system? I think that we're going to, you know, use the, the governor who we are, you know, and that whole part of the agency that we're often in contact with, we're going to use our, our, uh, allies and supporters like IDPH and CDC to have broader conversations about this as well. But we are beginning to look at those things already. Um, For example, at Stateville, we had instituted YARD um, because it was looking good and the offenders were restless, obviously, and we wanted to give them the opportunity to experience normalcy. We had to back off of that. You know, it's kind of like the same thing that's going on in the community when we had a few more positives. Uh, We don't actually think that it came from Yard, to be quite honest. You know, when you really think about it, if something's in the institution, it just may take a few days to unveil itself. Um, But we have to look at all the possibilities because what we don't want is an epidemic within the facility itself. But we are actually looking at that, and we're pleased that in other areas that uh, other prisons that have not been um, found to have COVID, they have a a, a fair amount of uh, movement compared to places like Stateville, which are which is still recovering. And um, so, you know, when when we think about that, I think um, some of the other things that we will be resuming would be some of what we call risks, you know, to get our patients out to uh, more of their standard appointments. Uh, Obviously, we couldn't have people going back and forth. And, you know, that obviously is is a setup for disaster. So most of our focus in terms of outside risks, as we call it, was on emergency care or urgency care. You know, some of our patients who have cancer may have to continue their treatments and things like that. So those things have been ongoing. But we're now looking at, at that at this very moment, when and how we will open up. And we're trying to do it in, in pieces, you know, looking at dentistry, looking at ophthalmology. Um, and our and some of our routine clinics have already begun to uh, be run again. Excellent. As it's, it's, as it's mirroring, you know, the state and federal recommendations of when we can open up our economy. It's a very similar analogous approach in the prison system, which is excellent. So yeah, just more challenging because we just don't have the, you know, the space to move people around if they Mm -hmm. happen to run into an exposure. So that's the challenge. Excellent. Dr. Conway, we really appreciate you being on Dr. Dave uh, on call. It's been really educational in terms of the aggressive approach the Illinois Department of Corrections has taken from the beginning of the pandemic and what, you know, evolving protocols have been changed too to support the prison population as well as the staff and to mitigate as best as possible as we try to, you know, combat the COVID-19 pandemic. We're, um, you know, optimistic too as we move forward and that, um, you know, our numbers go down and and hopefully we can you know mitigate successfully to where we can at least have these protocols in place if we have a second wave you know in the fall especially yeah. as you'd mentioned um, combating you know influenza too as well uh, concurrently which is a very oh, big yes. concern for public health officials and physicians all over the country. 
That's a good point. You know, we actually have pandemic plans from each of our facilities because no facility is exactly like. And um, that's one of the things we're going to be looking at. We're looking at those right now. Uh, every evolving, you know, uh, m many of our facilities are modifying their pandemic plans. Um, and we'll have to do some more modifications as we begin to look at influenza. You're absolutely right. Because it's coming back also. It will. Excellent. Excellent. Dr. Conway is the Deputy Chief of Medicine at the Illinois Department of Corrections, where she uh, she and her team oversee uh, the care of over 40,000 inmates in the Illinois Department of Correction uh, population here uh, in Illinois. Dr. Conway, we really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you, Dave. Dr. Dave, I appreciate being here. Take care. Be safe and healthy. And you do the same. COVID-19 in the United States jail population are environments that can spread aggressively and very quickly. The Illinois Department of Corrections has taken early initiatives during this pandemic to mitigate, to test, and to identify prisoners and staff and workers early on who have COVID-19. And they've implemented forward-thinking uh, strategies and protocols to prevent future outbreaks. So we'd really like to thank Dr. Conway for coming on Dr. Dave on call today to discuss this. Um, interesting and important uh, discussion that we have of COVID-19 and our prisons. We uh, appreciate everybody listening to as well. Uh, if you are subscribing to our podcast, you can find them on Apple and Spotify or wherever you download them. And if you're watching it on our video cast on YouTube, uh, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, Dr. Dave on call and give us a like too as well. And if you really want to tweet us, we'd love to hear your questions or comments. You can tweet us at Dr. Dave on call or you can email us too as well. We appreciate you tuning in today for this great episode, a great discussion on COVID-19 and prisoners. And we wish you all um, safe and uh, healthy uh, uh, day, especially during this COVID-19 pandemic. We'll see you next time. Take care. <laughs>